Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I wanted to make a platform to allow us to at least have that opportunity to talk about ourselves for ourselves. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. And today I'm talking to designer and OG podcaster Maurice Cherry. Maurice Cherry is principal and creative director at Lunch, an award-winning multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. These days, Maurice is perhaps most well-known for his award-winning podcast, Revision Path, which showcases black designers, developers, and digital creators from all over the world. And as of 2019, is the first podcast to be acquired by the Smithsonian. Other projects of Maurice's include the Black Weblog Awards, 28 Days of the Web, The Year of Tea, and the design anthology Recognize, as well as he's the creator of the influential 2015 AIGA presentation, Where Are the Black Designers? Maurice is the 2018 recipient of the Stephen Heller Prize for Cultural Commentary from AIGA for his work on Revision Path. He was named one of GDUSA's People to Watch in 2018 and was included in the 2018 edition of The Route 100, their annual list of the most influential African Americans ages 25 to 45. He's talented in all dimensions, can see way into the future, and uniquely capable of building platforms from scratch. You'll love him. Let's hear from Maurice. My name is Maurice Cherry. I am in Atlanta, Georgia. I think I can sum up probably the ethos of my work with recognizing and celebrating the power of Black design and creativity online. Yes. Before we get to deconstructing that and understanding everything about what you're doing today, I always like to go all the way back to zero and learn about the formative years. So can you tell me about young Maurice and your family, your hometown? Did you grow up in Atlanta? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in um, Selma, Alabama, which a lot of people know about from the civil rights movement, from the movie, from numerous politicians making their way through there on their campaigns. Uh, I grew up there. I'm like part of that first generation of kids right after Bloody Sunday and everything. So that's where I grew up. It's it's odd to describe how Selma is now because so many people, I feel like, have a greater cultural reference of it that's steeped in not necessarily the rose-colored glasses of history, but they have this sort of reverential look 
at what Selma is, when the reality is it's just a small town off the bypass in South Central Alabama with all the trappings that come with that in terms of there's like a hundred churches. There's maybe one place you can go shop like one mall or a trading post or something. Everything closes at around eight or nine o'clock PM. And that's about it. Uh, It's just sort of a small sleepy kind of Southern town. I mean, when you're living there, you're not, you're cognizant of the history of it because there's museums, and certainly if you're a student, there's no shortage of field trips to show, like, the Edmund Pettus Bridge, which I've walked over hundreds of times. And, you know, this is where people were beaten at Bloody Sunday, and this is a, you know, monument to, you know, whomever at this church and stuff. So you're kind of always aware of it and cognizant of it, but I don't know if as a kid it's something that you really care about, especially, I would say, if you're a kid in the 80s, because there's Nintendo and there's Saturday morning cartoons and so many other things that are just like vying for your attention. So the the weight in the history of the civil rights movement isn't really a thing that, at least as a kid, that I was like super invested in. But certainly as an adult, it's something that I know about now. You were marinated in it, but it's not necessarily, I mean, kids kids will do what kids will do. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting because like uh, when I moved away from Selma, people had no idea what Selma was or who it was. I remember even going to college and telling people I was from Selma and they thought that I was from Salem, Oregon. Like I said the name of the town that I'm from wrong or something like really weird. (laughs) (laughs) But that was, I think before Selma was really like such a big part of the general public discourse. So. Sure. So, I mean, what kinds of things fascinated you? You you mentioned Nintendo and a hundred churches. Were you a church going family? What was your family like? Oh man. So grew up mostly with a single mom. I mean, my, my parents were married. They got divorced when I was around 13 or so. My grandparents were really big church goers. My grandfather uh, who's passed away and my grandmother were both like big in the church that they were at deacon deaconess. They had these uh, titles of uh, that kind of great position. I wouldn't say necessarily that our direct family was a big church going family. They certainly made us go and I never wanted to go. <laughs> I would fake asleep. And my mom's like, I know you're awake. What would you rather been doing? Anything else, literally okay. anything else. There were some times <laughs> when I went to church and I would just sit outside the church and just do something else. Like anything besides that. Not that necessarily I was really like a heathen or anything like that, but it just wasn't interesting to me. In terms of stuff that I did for fun, I was, let's see, as a kid, I did a lot of drawing and writing. And of course, like, you know, we said Nintendo. So I played a lot of video games, hung out with friends of mine, although my mom wasn't really big about me hanging out with other kids. She really kind of wanted me to like stay in the house and be safe and not like go out and about because she grew up in Selma. So she, knew of a time when it wasn't safe to do the kind of things that I wanted to do as a kid because I just didn't know about, you know, the history of the city in that way. So I did a lot of things mostly in the house, but I mean, Selma is in the country. So there certainly were opportunities to like ride four wheelers and shoot BB guns and do all of the fun country kind of stuff that you do when you don't have cable and you have just (laughs) wide open spaces, you know? Yeah, I can imagine the gravity of that on your mom raising a child, having been witness to violence. Just that low-grade worry that's always there. Yeah. How did your childhood like transition into your adolescent years? This was around the time when uh, I mentioned that my parents got divorced when I was 
around 13. I have an older brother. He's four years older than me. So when I was 13, he was 17. He was about to graduate high school, go off to college. And for me, I felt like, oh, this is the time when I can sort of have a little bit of freedom because we shared a room my whole childhood until he left home. And so I was like, oh, I finally get to have my own room where I can close the door and do what I want in silence, you know, without getting bothered by anyone or anything like that. But my brother was off to college for about a year. He ended up not making it, coming back home, getting in trouble with the law, and then ended up going to jail. So I still had the room to myself, but just for different reasons. (laughs) Um, In terms of what my adolescence was, I did a lot of stuff just focused around school. Like school was kind of my my escape in a way. And I kind of treated my room like the lab where I would experiment with things that I would then go and do at school. For example, I was in the marching band and in the symphonic band. So I was teaching myself music and then going home on my keyboard and trying to transpose like video game soundtracks that I heard. I would like record it, then I would take it to my keyboard and try to change it from treble clef to bass clef and then try to play it on my trombone so I could then take it back to school and say, hey, this is this new song that I learned how to play or whatever. Still doing a lot of writing and drawing, just a lot of creative things to kind of take my mind off of the fact that we were in this just like small Southern town that really didn't have much going on. Outside of that, I think I learned a lot about the outside world through magazines. So I had subscriptions Mm to Vibe magazine and... I think I had a subscription to YSB also. YSB doesn't exist anymore, but I had subscriptions to a lot of magazines just to kind of see what life was like outside of Selma, Alabama, because the most that I knew was Selma. I knew Montgomery, which was 50 miles away, which is the capital of Montgomery. And that's about it. And we got to travel a few places in the marching band, but they were still all kind of within the city. The only sort of outlier is Atlanta, where they sort of took everyone every year as like a a class trip. Like, oh, everyone did so well in class. We're going to Six Flags over Georgia. Yay. And like that gets tiring after the second or third time, you know, like, oh, we're just going to (laughs) going to Six Flags again. Oh, this is so much fun. Not really seeing the rest of the city, like only going to Six Flags and that's it and coming right back home. My adolescence was just really a lot of nerdy pursuits. I was in the math club. Um, I took AP courses. I just kind of focused a lot on, I wouldn't necessarily say bettering myself because I guess I didn't see it that way back then, but I just focused in on the pursuits that made me happy and made me feel like I actually had an outlet. So like I focused on music, I focused on math, I focused on writing. Those were kind of the three main things that I did a lot of. And were you forming an idea of what you thought you'd become professionally at this time? You know, like I want to be when I grow up. Absolutely not. I had no clue. I was not (laughs) thinking about it at all because how can I put this? So when I was growing up, I was sort of considered back home like a bit of a prodigy. I don't know if I would necessarily call myself that now, but certainly there were times during my childhood where things would be pointed out like, oh, you're exceptionally smart in these areas. Like, I could read at a very early age. I took my first major standardized test when I was in seventh grade, and the score was high enough where I didn't have to take standardized tests all through high school. It was sort of this thing like, oh, Maurice will be fine. Like a lot of people kind of treated me in a way like, oh, Maurice will be okay. He'll find out what it is he's going to do. He's going to be big. He's going to be successful. So there's like this weird propping up of who I was and what I was going to do. And like, I really didn't 
think about like, oh, I want to do X, Y, Z as a career. I really didn't have an idea. I would watch television shows like A Different World and I would see the character Dwayne Wayne and think, oh yeah, I might want to go into computers. And I did do things with computers when I was a kid. I taught myself basic. I taught myself HTML. And so I was like, yeah, I guess I could do that. That's something I'm good at because in school, I'm like, I don't know what kind of job I can have where I'm really good at math and music and writing. I don't know what career that looks like. Maybe I'll go to college and figure it out. It's kind of, mm-hmm. I think, what what <laughs> I was initially thinking, but I really didn't have any sort of a plan at all. And I'll be honest, I didn't really have a plan in college either. I was just doing what I thought was fun and that I really enjoyed. How else are you going to figure it out? If you have a plan before you know what that plan should be, then you almost always are going to change the plan. That's true. I think if there was any plan that I had in high school, it was to get out of Alabama. It was like, if I can get out of this town and out of this state then the rest of the world is out there and I'll figure it out. I always sort of had this notion that I would just figure it out. But my main goal was just to get out of Alabama, which is what I did two weeks after I graduated college. Like, I'm out of here. Whoa. Okay, so I have a a quick follow-up question. Did that propping up and that almost like we don't have to worry about Maurice, he's going to be all right. It's almost a sort of positive neglect in a way. Did you Do you feel like you missed out on some attention? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) They just didn't have to worry about you? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, and part of it was was brought on by myself, honestly. I mean, once my parents got divorced and my brother was just kind of running with a bad crowd and was in and out of trouble, stuff would happen to me too at school. Like I would have negative experiences with things, but I never brought that home because I didn't want to have to be the thing, another thing for my mom to worry about. She was already dealing with stuff at work, with getting profiled and harassed and everything. Then she's got this no good ex-husband. And now she's got this other son that's doing stuff like, look, I don't want to contribute. I don't want to be the the cherry on top, no pun intended, of everything that's (laughs) happening. I'll just kind of keep it to myself. So there were things that happened when I was in high school that I just I just didn't mention. I was like, look, I'll handle it myself. I'll deal with it. I don't want to be a burden on my mom in that kind of way. And are you still that way? Sort of. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> think, right, well, I think my mom knows now, like, Maurice will be fine, you know, but it's in a yeah. different, I think it's a different level of respect now than it was when I was a kid. If I'm under her roof, there's a whole thing of like, I have to take care of this person. He's a minor. I can't just let him out, you know, do whatever, whatever he does. But like, now I've been out of the world and succeeding and traveling and everything. And so she's like, yeah, he's, he'll, he'll be okay. But do you share your your burdens with your support network, your your friends, your family? Oh, yeah. Like my friends and family know. But even then, like I tend to be pretty positive most of the time. Uh-huh. I try not to take myself too, too seriously with, with some things. I think it's good to have one to have like a personal code of ethics that you just live by. But then also to determine what success looks like for you, because I yeah. think what that want of not wanting to be a burden is rooted in is like a fear of not being a success in some way or like letting someone down or something like that. But once I was able to kind of think about what success looks like for me personally, like what I'm happy with at the end of the day, then everything else is fine. Well, I definitely want to talk about what success looks like for you. But before we get to that, I want to know about two weeks after graduation when you got the hell out of Selma. (laughs) Where did you go and what was that like? So I went uh, right to Atlanta 
um, and just to kind of give some context to why I wanted to get the hell out so fervently, mm-hmm. it was just a small town. And especially when you're a teenager. And I mean, I was watching BT and seeing the music videos and watching MTV. And I'm like, there's a whole world of like fun, cool stuff happening outside of these sticks. Like I got to get out of here. But also mm-hmm. I was experiencing like a lot of racism at school, particularly my last semester of high school where I had teachers that were like purposely changing my grade so I wouldn't be salutatorian. I was getting what? threats from people, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And so I really wanted to get out because I'm like, I don't see myself staying here. And I wouldn't even say thriving, but like just living and surviving. Like, I don't see that being an option. It was around the last week or two of school when they were doing the senior awards day. And I received a full scholarship from Morehouse College to attend there. And then on top of that, a full scholarship to Morehouse from NASA, where I would be a NASA scholar and I could intern at two NASA facilities while I was going through college. And then by the time I graduated, I would have a job with NASA. And so I'm like, oh, okay, so this will all work out. The only thing I have to do is get out of Selma. (laughs) Yeah. As soon as I graduated, the summer program for the the scholarship program started in two weeks. And so I got out as soon as I can and went straight to Atlanta and right to Morehouse's campus, stayed in the dorms. Were you so excited? I was so excited because I just wanted to get out so bad. And this was at a time, I mean, this this is 1999. So there's a lot of stuff going on that year outside of just the fact that it's like the turn of the century. When you think about it here in the Southeast in particular, this is right after the Olympics. So Atlanta is still kind of buzzing from that like post-Olympic glow. Mm-hmm. It's right after Freaknik. And so a lot of people still know of Atlanta as being like this big party city, which I never got to go to parties in high school. And I wanted to go to all the parties in college. And I'm like, there's any place to do it. And like, this is going to be the place to do it. And Morehouse was such a prestigious and well-known school that I'm like, Martin Luther King went to Morehouse. This should be a good time. This should be a a very like interesting and fun experience once I go to Morehouse. So I was just ready to get all of that started. So like, why wait until August? Like if I can go ahead and go now two weeks after and just start taking classes and get into the mix of campus life, then I'll do it. And so that's what I did. How nice to go where you're recognized and wanted and supported, right? I mean, those full ride scholarships from NASA and Morehouse are real big examples of validation where you're coming from teachers who are actively sabotaging you, which is, that should be a crime. Educators, (laughs) that's not what they're supposed to do. (laughs) Yeah. And some of those teachers are still there. I should make mention that some of those teachers are still at my high school. I don't know if they're still doing it to other people, but they're still around and it's sinister. It is sinister, but I like this positive trajectory you're on. And what, did it turn out to be everything you wanted it to be? Did the world open up for you? Did you go to all the parties? Um. <laughs> so yes and no. Okay. I'm sort of giving a peek behind the curtain here for folks that may not be familiar with the HBCU experience or even like what it is like going to college in Atlanta. But there were so many parties, not necessarily on campus. Morehouse is a dry campus and there's not really, they just didn't have a lot of places for parties. Some people might throw a party in their dorm room or something, but like you had to be really kind of covert about it. What would happen though, is that the nightclubs would send charter buses to pick you up, take you to the club, and then you can get on the bus and it'll take you right back to the dorm. 
Wow. <laughs> almost like a weird kind of like valet service sort of thing. They have the same thing for churches too, even though there is a chapel on Morehouse's campus. Some of the mega churches would also send charter buses to like, oh, we're going to pick you up and take you to church and we'll bring you right back. That's smart. Make it easy. Yeah. Um, so I did go to uh, a fair amount of parties. But the thing is that that first year, I'd say really that first semester, but definitely that first year at Morehouse is very tough. It's it's a culture shock in a lot of ways. I think it's just the the regular culture shock of going from the sheltered environment of being with your parents to now you're on your own with mm-hmm. you know your peers and you can do whatever you want whenever you want and no one's really going to say anything. And like for a lot of people, that's too much freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it's very easy to just get wrapped up in going to the clubs or just get wrapped up in doing anything but going to class because no one's going to make you go to class. You sort of have the the obligation that you should go, especially if you're on scholarship, because that's how you keep your scholarship. You're not getting a wake up call. No one's knocking on your door like, come on, it's time to go to class. Nobody's going to do that. You have to do that yourself. So if you have that self-determination and you can get through that first semester. And I think, you know, during my first semester, I certainly did my fair share of parties, also went to class and everything and, and did what I needed to do. But I almost got kicked out that first semester. I, I had a roommate at the time that was sort of conspiring against me and brought that up, brought up some issues with the, the RAs and the RDs there. And I ended up getting kicked out of the dorm that I was in freshman year. For people that know Morehouse, it was Graves Hall. I got kicked out of Graves Hall. Had to do like a a probation period in a different dorm. This is a this is a very long story. This could be the podcast, but it's <laughs> But like I had to do this weird probationary period in a different dorm in in a room that was like it was like an apartment almost like it had a separate bedroom and bathroom and everything. But the doors didn't have locks. And so I had to like push all my stuff up against the door so no one would walk in because sometimes people would walk in and then eventually got placed in another dorm with a new roommate sometime near the end of the first semester and him and his roommate had gotten to blows. Like they had been fighting. Like I remember going to his room for the first time and he was sitting there with like a black eye and a busted lip and the door was off the hinges. And I'm like, you want me to stay here? This can't be right. But him and his roommate apparently had gotten into it. It just got like really super messy. And I ended up spending the rest of my freshman year in that room, ended up getting a part-time job. I was working for a tech startup called College Club, which was like a predecessor to Facebook. College Club was this place where different campuses had these like online, basically like an online message board of sorts. And each school had its own representative. So I was the campus rep for Morehouse College. And basically what I would do is I would take pictures of people to document campus life, but also get them to sign up for College Club. And when you signed up for College Club, you got your own profile, you got your own email address, you got a phone number that you could call and like listen to your mail <laughs> over the phone. Like someone would read it out to you. Oh, it was like a text to voice kind of thing where we would read the mail out to you. I was getting paid money like hand over fist to do that. I wow. I remember my first check I think for the first month was around like four thousand dollars. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money when you're a freshman in college. I just did stupid random flagrant idiotic things with that money uh you know like how fun was that it was was so much fun and the the i guess sort of the better thing about it was my roommate who i had at the time 
it, it was starting to become clear that college was just not the thing for him. He was getting into it with other people. Like he was just very a very argumentative kind of person. He ended up not going this to classes. The guy with the black guy and the busted lip. Yeah, yeah. He ended up not going to classes. He rearranged all the furniture in the room. So all of my furniture was just like in this little sliver next to the the wall. And he took up 80% of the room and I had 20% of the room. And at one point, I think he kind of just had like a mental episode. And then he stayed in the room for about a week playing uh, Mega Man games on emulators because I introduced him to that. Like I would go to class in the morning. He's like, I'm going to beat all the Mega Mans today. Okay. All right, I'm going to class. I'll go to class, go to my work study job, come back six or seven at night. He's still playing. I'm like, oh, you haven't moved. All right. Well, eventually he ended up leaving. And then I had the room to myself, I think, for the last two or three months of freshman year. But freshman year was a roller coaster. Freshman year was, uh, sounds like it was the year that I wasn't sure I wanted to stay at Morehouse. I actually at one point tried to see if, and this is, just me being young and stupid being like, oh, can I transfer my scholarship to another school? And they're like, no, you can't do that. I'm like, are you sure? Because like they want me. It's not necessarily me at this school. They're like, no, it's to the school. I'm like, okay, well, couldn't do that. So the first year was was rough. <laughs> my first year, I can look back at yeah. it and laugh now, but going through it was hellish. What made it better was the fact that right after that, I did my internship in California at Ames Research Center, which is in Moffett Field, right outside Mountain View, California. Mm-hmm. And so that was like my first time on a plane, first time in California, first time I had like a real burrito, first time I, I saw a Whole Foods. Like there were so many firsts out there, like, oh, I got to see a palm tree for the first time. Oh, this is what West Coast hip hop is like. Oh my God. Like just a lot of great wow. firsts out there. I was only out there for a couple of months working at, at Ames Research Center and studying robotics education. And we were teaching these K through 12 students how to do robotics with these little Lego Mindstorm kits. They would make the robots and then we would show them how to do programming on these microcontrollers called buddy boards. And that was a lot of fun. Like I really enjoyed that time out there because it was so far away from the South. It was far away from home. It was far away from school. And it kind of gave me a good chance to reset because again, I, I went from a very stressful environment in Selma, two weeks later, get to Morehouse, and then that's stressing me out for that entire year. So this was mm-hmm. like the first time that I could really take a breath and mm-hmm. like take stock of like, what is happening? What do I need to change to make this a better experience? Like at Morehouse specifically, like what do I need to change? What do I need to do to make this a better experience? Because you can't keep going through this every year. What's going to have to change internally? For that to happen. What kind of changes did you make? Well, the first change I made was that I changed my major. (laughs) I I was, I came in as a computer science, computer engineering major, because they had this dual degree program where if you did three years at Morehouse, two years at Georgia Tech, and then once you graduated, you would have a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. And I'm like, oh, that seems like, you know, two degrees, five years. That seems like a good deal. It's terrible. But also, I really wanted to work on the web. I wanted to do web design because I had been teaching myself HTML and really got into that in high school. And then I wanted to do it in college. And my advisor at the time was like, the internet is a fad. If this is something that you really want to get into, you need to change your major because that's not what we do here. I was like, oh, okay. Well, one of the first things I did certainly when I got back was I changed my major over to math, which I 
was good at math. I mentioned before I was in the in the math team in high school. I literally did the math to see if I switched over, could I graduate earlier, which I could. I could graduate like a, a semester early if I switched over to math because I had taken Cal 2 in those that, that summer period after high school. Mm-hmm. And I took AP uh, calculus in high school. So I was like, oh, these count. So sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just switch to math. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing, and and I kind of, uh, this wasn't really my decision. This kind of just happened throughout the course of the year was most of the people in my scholarship program who I had sort of went through the summer with and went through that freshman year with, cut them off. I'm like, I can't run with this crowd. I just couldn't run with that crowd anymore. It just wasn't a good fit for what I was trying to do. My main focus now, once I came back from that internship is get the hell out of Morehouse, get your degree. And then you have your NASA job and then we'll see what happens because that's kind of what the general trajectory was for everyone in the program. Anyway, you did your two internships, then you graduated and then you get placed at a NASA facility. So I'm like, let me just focus on that, like focus on the end goal instead of trying to go through and do all the fun stuff in college, which is not to say I didn't do more fun stuff in college, but I just had to shift who I was hanging around, what my mindset was and like, just keep my eyes on the prize essentially. That sounds incredibly mature for a college sophomore. <laughs> well, I think, you know, also it's this, it's tied to me even being there. Like if I would have continued the way I was continuing, I definitely would have been in danger of losing my scholarship. And then that would have been thousands of dollars that I know my mom couldn't pay. You know, she was making maybe 30, 40 K a year, probably like there's no way she could have paid for me to go to a school like Morehouse unless it was on scholarship. I'm already in the door. I can't fuck it up by being stupid about stuff. So like, just keep my focus on getting my work done, just having like a cool core group of people that I hang out with and not these jokers that I thought I was cool with that I came up with in my scholarship program. I just have to kind of change everything. I get it that you don't want to fuck it up, but it also sounds like you're an incredibly sort of centered individual and kind of new. This is what I require of myself in order to achieve the goals that I'm setting for myself. That's my Virgo moon, I think, is is what contributes. Okay. <laughs> okay. It doesn't sound like it was pure just like discipline and like I've got to abstain from the fun stuff and buckle down because that's what's expected of me. It, yeah. it sounds like you're really you were you were steering the ship, but it was towards something that you wanted. Right. And I mean, I had the fun experiences like I was a total raver like my first 2 years of college. So like we were going to raves at the atrium did all manner of illicit drugs and stuff. Can I mention, can I talk about that? <laughs> oh, of course. I'm a believer in sowing oats. I think uh, you got to have your system <laughs> or um, else it'll haunt you. Uh, <laughs> you I, do it in middle age. <laughs> <laughs> we would, we would take the bus out to the atrium, which was this club out in like stone mountain. And just, I mean, it's a rave. So there's, ecstasy and other types of illicit drugs and stuff. And so we would do that and come back to the dorm and just crash. Like, so I did have my fun times at college. Don't get me wrong, but I definitely also had the, the focus to just like, I have to get out of here. Like I have to focus and get my degree, get placed in in a NASA facility. And then I'm good after that. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. 
Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Take me to the NASA facility. Clearly, you got your degree, right? I did get my degree. So there's a there's a bit of a a, a detour in there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sophomore year, still staying on campus. I'm staying in a different dorm uh, with this guy who wants to be a, a a lawyer or a judge or something like that. This guy from Philly, and I mean, he was just not the best roommate. Got in a lot of trouble. He had this thing where he would store butterscotch crimpets from Tasty Cakes. He would store <laughs> them in boxes under his bed because he's like, oh, I'm from Philly. You know, cheesesteaks and boys to men. I don't know. But like he would store the boxes under his bed. Oh, this is not going to turn out. And we ended up getting mice in the room. Of course you did. And he oh, blamed God. the fact that we had mice because I'm from Alabama. Oh my god! I'm like, yeah, they came in with me in my luggage. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, it's not why we have mice. You're storing dozens of boxes of snack cakes under your bed. You didn't think we were going to attract mice? What the fuck? You know. But yeah, that that sophomore year after that, the summer going into junior year, I interned at Marshall Space Flight Center, which was in Normal, Alabama, which is right outside of Huntsville. So it's back to Alabama, but just a different part, like Northern Alabama. So okay. it's kind of a return home, but not really. Um, I'm, you know, like back in Alabama, but just in under different circumstances. They gave us a really nice apartment right there near the base and everything. And I was studying human computer engineering. It's the first place I saw a 3D printer because they, mm. they 3D print the nose cone for the space shuttle because it burns up on reentry. So they show the 3D printer on like how they make it and everything. And I was like, oh, this is cool. He's like, yeah, we may have these in homes one day. I'm like, huh? So this is like 2001 when this happened. So I get back to college my junior year, which is 2001. It's September. I think you might see where I'm going with this. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm in the, I've been Kilgore, which is one of the, it's a dorm, but they also have like a study hall there. So I was at the study hall at Kilgore and I was studying for a test for my abstract algebra two course. And I saw on a TV in one of the other rooms, like the first plane going to the towers. And so everyone is like transfixed and watching and like we're seeing all this happening. I still go to try to take my test because my test was at like 945 or so. So I still go to try to take my test. And the professor was like, uh, it's canceled for today. Like we'll be in touch about what we do for the rest of the week or anything like that. And I remember trying to get home and it being just super difficult because Everyone was trying to get home at the same time. You know, this just happened and nobody knew what to do. I couldn't get in touch mm -hmm. with my parents. Like the, the other good thing was that I had moved off campus by this point. So I had an apartment 
way off campus, which really removed a lot of drama from going to Morehouse was the fact that I didn't have to like live and go to school there. And there were no mice and, and tasty cakes. Yeah. And none of that. No, no mice. <laughs> and no, I, <laughs> I knew it was time for me to, to move out of campus when to go back to the mouse incident. Um, we had went to Kroger, we got glue traps and we ended up catching the mouse and <gasps> he caught the mouse and he put it in this big plastic cup. There used to be these, um, I don't know, like, I guess they still have like these industries that will drop off these little like care packages at college. And so it's like this big plastic cup that I guess you could drink water and stuff out of, but they put gum and socks and a toothbrush and stuff in there just to be like, Hey, here's a little welcome package. So uh-huh. he takes the mouse and he puts it in this cup and he takes the cup outside in the parking lot, sets it on fire ah. and starts dancing around it. And I'm like, yeah, it's time for me to get off campus. This is, this is yes. not what I signed up for at all. <laughs> That's sadism. <laughs> That's, it's, it's very, yeah. To go forward to, to September 11th, when this all happened, I remember getting back home, not really kind of knowing what was happening. I don't think anybody really had a, a clue what was happening. We just all watched television and tried to figure out like what the situation was and what was happening in the country and everything. And I want to say it was maybe like a few weeks later or so that we got told that the funding for our program was changing because now there's this like new department of Homeland Security. And that funding is being diverted. And we know that we promised that you would be working at a NASA facility upon graduation. And that will be true for, you know, for, I think the seniors that were in the program, but we were juniors. And so it now was no longer a sure deal that I was going to work at a NASA facility after graduating. This is the beginning of my junior year. I have no career prospects lined up. Like this was going to be it. I put all my eggs in this one basket and now you basically cut the handles off the basket and stomped on the eggs. So now what? So I had to get very crafty to try to figure out kind of what my next step was because I really didn't have anything lined up. I was working at the local symphony, selling tickets, making minimum wage-ish, I think, maybe a little bit more, like eight seventy an hour, something like that. And it was a good job to have on nights and weekends, but I wasn't getting rich from it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I what happened don't... to the college club where you were getting rich? Oh, college club went belly up. Basically, there was a point with college club where they were giving away like $10,000 a week. They just went bankrupt. They got bought out by student advantage. And I don't even know if student advantage is around anymore, but college club went belly up my freshman year. The good thing was they let me keep the camera. So the camera that they had us use is digital camera to show how long ago this was. It was about the size of, maybe about the size of a DVD case, maybe a little bit shorter than that, but you have to put a hard disc in it, like a three and a quarter hard disc in it, because it was, that's what it used for memory. So it saved all the images to like a disc that you could then take out and then put in your computer, like a floppy disc. Man. So they let me keep the camera, which was great, but I'm like, who's going to let this big ass camera around? Like, (laughs) it's not, it's not feasible. But yeah, so junior year, I've already done my two internships, and but now there's no guarantee of what I'm going to do after that. I ended up getting in really good with the secretary in the computer science department. Shout out to to Mrs. Banks, and got really good with in good with her. I would sit in the computer lab. I would sit in her office. We would talk all the time, and I mean, she's a good friend. Definitely helped get me through those last two years of college. 
And sometimes, you know, she would have to go and run an errand or something. She'd be like, I just need you to watch the office for me. So I would sit at her desk and I would be the secretary of the computer science department or whatever. But that also got me access to the interview books. So what happened was the majors kind of had different companies that would come to the school and say, oh, we want to interview people, blah, 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 have them sign up or whatever. And so there's like this book that's basically almost like a like a registry. You would put your resume in there. You'd put your name and, you know, your email address or something. And you'd get basically placed for an interview with this company once they came to campus. So I was able to slide my resume in there, put my name on the registry and got to interview with a few places, interviewed at Microsoft, interviewed at Real Player couple of other companies none of them panned out unfortunately because they quickly realized wait you don't have a you're not studying computer science i'm like no but i really like computers they're like yeah that's not enough (laughs) you can't just really like computers you have to actually be getting a degree in it i'm like well i'm getting a degree in math that's computers do math no (laughs) none of that worked unfortunately so by the time i graduated i had nothing lined up. I was still working at the theater. The only difference was that they took away the calculator that was at my terminal because they said that, you know, you have a math degree, so you don't need this. (laughs) Oh, man. Which I didn't, but, I mean, come on. Right. Rubbing salt in the wound. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so get me from graduation and working at the theater to revision path. I worked at a lot of customer service jobs because there just were no real job prospects. If you had a bachelor's degree in math around that time in the market, you could be an actuary for a, an insurance agency, which I didn't want to do, or you could be a math teacher, which I didn't want to do. I didn't want to mm. do anything that had to do with school. Cause I'm like, I've done 12 years of K through 12 plus four years of college. I'm, I'm I would, I need a break from school. Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of customer service jobs. I worked at, it's called the the Woodruff Art Center, but it's the Alliance Theater as well as the High Museum. And then there's also like a venue space inside of that as well. So I worked there selling tickets. I was a telemarketer for a long time. I did work for the Atlanta Opera. I just did like a bunch of like odd jobs in between that, taking on like design gigs here and there. So wait, I got to stop you. So you got a math degree, but you were interested in coding and HTML and web design. And since you were a kid, you were always interested in drawing. So at this point, are you sort of a self-taught designer, a self-taught web designer? I am, but like I didn't really have a portfolio of things that I could show off. And and this is sort of the odd thing. There would be positions that I would see for like a webmaster or a web designer or something or a graphic mm-hmm. designer. But they either wanted you to have went to an art school and gotten a degree in like visual communications or something like that, or went to a four-year college and got a degree in computer science. I don't know why you need a degree in computer science to know how to program a website, but that was kind of what it was back then. We're talking like from 2003 to like 2005. That's kind of what the market was because there were no boot camps or anything like that. And there actually weren't even, I think, a bunch of schools that had like design programs for the web. Right. So finding a job was was really hard in design at that point. So I was, you know, I worked at Auto Trader for a while. It was, it was a dealer concierge for car dealers in the in the Southwest, you know, like just a bunch of like random jobs, honestly, just to get food on the table, but nothing that was really stable. 
and I got fired from my last customer service job in December of 2004. And I had no clue what I was going to do. My mom was pissed. Like, what are you doing? You went to that fancy school, you got that degree and now look at you. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And so now I'm like, Oh shit. Now I'm the one she has to worry about. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that was the the fucked up part about it. So I'm like, I need to, <laughs> I need to figure something out. We have an alt weekly here in Atlanta called Creative Loafing, sort of mm-hmm. like analogous to like the Village Voice or something like that. There was a position in there in the back classifieds for an electronic media specialist, and I just applied on a whim. Like I was like, I, I think I meet like sixty percent of this stuff, but sure, why not? And I got the job. I interviewed, I got the job and I was there for about a year and a half. And that's kind of really like my first professional design gig where I cut my teeth on, oh, this is what design is like in the workplace. I was webmaster. I don't even think webmaster is a thing that people can be now, but I was like webmaster over three sites and I was making interactive CDs and slideshows and marquees, like those big roadside marquees that you see with the animated stuff. I was doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Did that for about a year and a half. Then from there, went to AT&T as a designer, worked there for on and off about two years, quit AT&T, started my studio called Lunch. Although back then it was called 318 Media. I ended up changing the name later to Lunch because there were a lot of three blank, blank media companies in Atlanta. There was like a 360 Media, a 352 Media. I was 318 Media. And um, I changed my name just to make it easier because people kept getting us confused. I would keep getting leads for the other companies like, yeah, I need to change that. I like lunch. Yeah. I want to go to lunch. (laughs) (laughs) So it was about five years into lunch. It was 2013 when I first got the idea to do Revision Path. And it stemmed from an earlier project of mine that I did called the Black Weblog Awards that I started in 2005. And it was the first internet awards that kind of focused on Black bloggers and podcasters and video bloggers. And I did that from 2005 to 2011, right around my 30th birthday. I sold it. And then I kind of still had the idea to do some kind of big project like this that I knew focused on like Black creativity online. Because mm-hmm. I was a designer. I knew friends that were designers that just felt like they were not getting any kind of recognition for the work that they were doing. I certainly didn't feel like I was getting recognition for the work that I was doing. Like no one was talking to us. We weren't reflected in design media at all. Like, so I wanted to make a platform to allow us to at least have that opportunity to talk about ourselves for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I started Revision Path is just kind of out of that idea, out of that notion. I wanted to do long form interviews, very similar to the great discontent or something like that, where you had these long, deep 2000 plus word interviews on people. And that was good, but it was just hard to get all of that in one sitting from a lot of folks. Also, mm-hmm. nobody knew who the hell I was. So I would reach out to people and say, hey, my name is Mari Sherry, and I'm doing this, that, and the third. And they're like, I, who are you? Why Why would I talk to you? You know? Well, um, in 2013, nobody even knows what a podcast is yet. Right. Really. Exactly. I mean, it's still really new. And so the technology was probably difficult. And were you doing in-person interviews or remote recording? Oh, uh, yeah, they were all remote. Yeah. Okay. So, man, yeah. you really are a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> so there, was a, there were a lot of no. I mean, there were some yeses, thankfully, but there were definitely a lot of no's in those first, I'd say, maybe two years or so, because people were just like, I don't know 
who you are. I've never heard of this. Why would I talk to you? I'll, you know, I'm going to talk to this other podcast or I'm going to talk to this other magazine. Like, why would I speak to you about the work that I'm doing? And so I kind of, in those early days, it was tough. I really wanted to give up in those early days a lot because not only was I not getting the support from other black designers, I -hmm. just wasn't getting support from the design community period. I had reached out to other design podcasters that I knew to try to trade guests or say, Hey, if you're looking for more diversity in your guests, I've talked to these people. I can introduce you. And they're like, yeah, we don't really talk about race. We don't really go into that. So that's not really a thing that we're going to do. Or, or, you know, sometimes the messages would be just a lot nastier than that. I would often get accused of being a racist all the time. Yeah. It's just a racist side project. Why are you only talking to black people? Well, why are you only talking to white people? You know, and then you flip it on them and then they never respond. So, yeah. And and when I look back at it, I know what I was trying to do. I was trying to take this thing and put it in front of an audience that honestly wasn't ready for it. You were ahead of your time, but at the same time, you you built a platform and then you started stocking it with this incredibly nutrient dense archive and you were growing it. You know, it gestated and grew in the garden, you know, and now it's in full bloom. The big change came for me probably in 2015. In 2015, I had started to get involved with this with this professional organization, AIGA. So I was doing some volunteer work with them on their diversity okay. and inclusion task force. Um, and I had put together this presentation that I was going to present at South by Southwest called Where Are the Black Designers? And I did that in conjunction with AIGA. They certainly helped out with the research. They helped out with the funds for me to get to South by Southwest to even make it like happen. And I remember giving that speech to a room of about 15 people, maybe 20. Like it was an empty room. <laughs> it was an empty room. Wow. I mean, the rooms at South by where they have these talks can easily seat like about 200 people. And my room felt like the room that you ducked into at the end of the day to charge your phone. I'm speaking to like a anemic crowd of <laughs> folks, just like not a lot of people there. Uh and thinking like, what am, what am I doing? Like, what am I trying? What am I proving with this? You know, sort of having another come to Jesus talk with myself. Like, what are you doing? What is, what is this? Now there were people in that room who thankfully I still actually keep in touch with to this day, because these were people that were from like Facebook and from Pinterest and from other companies and stuff that kind of saw the value of what it was that I was trying to do and what I was trying to put forth. It was sort of at that time, particularly at South by Southwest, I got invited to the Facebook house that they had there and got to meet some people that were there and talk to folks. And it suddenly dawned on me, like, I just need to run like my own race. Like, I just need to stay in my own lane, like very similar to when I was in college and figuring out I need to just focus on my stuff. I need to focus on whatever the the end goal is and just keep doing that and not get distracted by trying to make this a thing for everyone and just make it the best that I can for the audience that I have. And so that mindset happened like right after South by Southwest, where I just kind of said, okay, we're just going to go full steam on this every week and just keep going and just see how far we can take it. Like that was sort of what, what the goal was. And I'm, you know, very fortunate to still be able to do it to this day, which is great. We're over 350 episodes, but I really, I don't know if I would have gotten that far if I wouldn't have made that shift. Cause I really was trying hard to make it, like something for the entire design community to be a part of. 
And the entire design community kind of showed me like, yeah, I'm not really that interested in it. So I was like, okay, well, let me just focus on the audience I have because they like it. And so that's kind of what I ended up doing. Again, a very mature and astute and wise kind of decision making, especially at, the, at that young age. And and to dedicate to yourself, yourself. Well, I, wasn't, to I, to, I wasn't. I wasn't that young when that happened. I was thirty five. So oh was, man, this still feels young, though. <laughs> For me, I didn't know what I was doing at thirty five. <laughs> I feel you that it's a difficult and yet important decision to make to stay the course on something that feels so organic and um, important and meaningful to you, and does have a, an audience but is not necessarily turning into the thing you thought it would be right away or turning into something that's going to pay your bills and take care of your future. To stay so driven and connected to a course, I don't know, man, what what, what were you doing at the same time to pay the bills? And were you still pursuing web design or yeah so so when i started revision path i was five years in on my studio so okay i had yeah so at this point in time i had established clients i had a distributed team of designers and developers that i was working with i was very fortunate early on in the days of starting my studio to get involved with the political campaign it was one of the the mayoral candidates that was running for mayor in atlanta and ended up really impressing her and impressing the whole campaign. And a lot of the connections that I have to this day stem from that, like a lot of professional connections. I'm not saying everyone should go out and work a campaign because it's brutal, but those early days in like 2009 of my studio really kind of helped shape what the rest of the studio was until I kind of wound things down in 2017. But certainly by the time I started Revision Path, it was just like a hobby slash passion project. Like, Got oh, it. I finally have the time to do this. Let me see if I can do it. Honestly, I think it was maybe around 2017 when the podcast started overtaking the studio work. Because what happened was, is that really the market just changed. People mm-hmm. didn't really want or need these big, like bespoke WordPress sites anymore. They were very comfortable with just getting something on Squarespace or Wix mm-hmm. or something. And so a lot of the work that I was doing just kind of died out because people wanted simpler solutions that they could handle themselves. And they just didn't see the need to do something bigger than that. And I tried to pivot my business. I did creative consulting and that worked out for a while doing some work with Vox Media and with some other companies. But even that was like short-lived stuff, like six months here, three months there, that kind of thing. Nothing really super sustainable. Whereas, you know, back in the day, I was like on retainer with a few companies. So there would be, you know, it would be great. I'd have constant work, constant money coming in. Like, this is great. But Revision Pass started to overtake the studio just in terms of not just money that was coming in, but also just the amount of work that was happening. And so by the time, you know, 2017 kind of came by, I was winding the studio down. I ended up getting uh, a full-time job at a company called Fog Creek Software, which then became Glitch. And I worked there for two and a half years and got laid off in May. And now here I am. Whoa, the pandemic has definitely thrown people for a lot of loops. But at what point did, and and I want to talk about you being laid off, Mm -hmm. but I also want to know how did Revision Path be acquired by the Smithsonian? That's a huge honor. Yeah. So to really tell that story, I have to go back to 2015. And in 2015, 
I attended this conference in Har- it was at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was called the Black and Design Conference, and it was put on by the African American Student Union at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. And it's the first time they had ever done an event like this. I heard about it. I saw tickets were like less than a hundred dollars. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going. I'm going. And I was trying to get other people to go with me, like other black designers, and they're like, oh well. What, what are they going to be talking about? And are they talking about Photoshop? I don't know if it has to really do with my job. And I'm like, it's a black design conference. How many of these have you been to in your career? Let's just go. <laughs> like the tickets are super cheap. Let's just go. And I couldn't really get other folks to want to go with me. So I went for that first year and it was so transformative because it's rare and it's probably different now, but certainly back then in 2015, it's so rare to go to an event and feel affirmed not just as a designer, but also as a black person. Like, yeah. oh, like I felt like this was this was great. So they they talked about space, like the concept of space. And they started at the neighborhood and they zoomed out to like the city, then the region and like further out. And there was a lot of talk about preservation and how do you create safe spaces and make spaces and things of that nature. And granted, Harvard Graduate School of Design largely deals with the built environment. So it's architects, it's landscape folks, et cetera. No, at that point, web and graphic people. I was like one of the, probably one of the the few that were there really just trying to see what this was all about, see what, see what this was going to do, right? I just felt so inspired from that. And one of the things that they were mentioning was the new African-American uh, Museum of History and Culture that was going to be opening up. Because at this point in time, the announcement, I think it came out, but I don't even know if they had broken ground on it yet. And so one of the the head architects, Phil Freelon, who passed away last year, rest in peace, was there at the event giving a keynote. And he was being interviewed by Daryl Crooks. Daryl Crooks at the time was the art director for The Atlantic. Now he's a creative director at Apple. But mm-hmm. they were like doing an interview together. And one of the curators from the museum was there. And I remember talking with her and I gave her my card and I told her like, yeah, I do this podcast where, you know, I talk to black designers and and, you know, I'd love if you could, like, just take a listen to it. And if you think this might be something that would be good for the museum, because they kept mentioning that they were looking for people to donate. And they were like, you can donate anything as long as it, as it has to do with Black culture. And we'll evaluate oh. it and see if it's worthy, you know, to go in the museum. And I remember telling her this, and she was just like, uh-huh, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> like, I think at first she didn't really understand she's like a podcast what is that like she didn't really right. it's probably hard for her to imagine what how an audio format could be donated and fit yeah and I was trying to kind of you know just explain like what we do and like these are some of the people uh-huh. I talk to I don't think it, it really registered then and okay. so the next time that I went to the conference because they have it every other year in 2017 I went and the same curator was there and I told her about the podcast again and I said we now have these sponsors and we just hit 250 or so episodes, I think something like that. And, you know, it would be great if she could like take a listen and just let me know. I don't mean to be a pest, but I really feel like this is important. And I just really want to just get your take on it, you know, honestly. And it wasn't until the year after that, 2018, that I finally heard back from uh, the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. And they're like, we're going to go through the archives and evaluate it and we'll let you know what we think. So they go through the archives, they come back to me and they say, these are the people whose interviews we want to have in the museum. And they had like a list of 10 people. 
And like we went back and forth on a couple of the people just in terms of like the, the historical relevance and what they were looking for settled on the final list. And they're like, great. So then we're going to do our thing and like obtain museum usage rights, which is, I guess, contacting each of the people and seeing if this is okay and getting, you know, getting everyone sign off on it essentially. Right. And so from then it's just really like a waiting game. One of the unfortunate things that happened that one of the people whom we were set to include in the exhibit and we did end up including him, but he passed away. And so we ended up dedicating it to his wife and his son. So it like went towards his estate and everything, which I think might've lengthened the process a bit. Uh, mm. For those who might be curious, his name is uh, John Daniel, J-O-N. He's a prolific creative director in the UK. It wasn't until around May or June of 2019 that they finally got back to me. So there's a lot of waiting at this point. And I'm checking up like, hey, Merry Christmas, just trying to see if there's anything more I can do. They're like, we'll get back to you. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so just me continually checking in, trying to figure out like... Is there more that I can do to like speed up this process? Do you need more information from me? Anything. So they get back to me and they're like, congratulations. You know, they send me the the deed of gift, which basically is the contract that like solidifies. This is what you're donating to the museum. And we've, you know, verified it, et cetera. And so at the time I'm like, we're coming up on our 300th episode. And I knew that was going to be with Hannah Beekler, who was the Academy Award winning production designer for Black Panther. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to have Hannah's episode in there because I told her agent that if we interview her, we can get her interview into the museum. And she was like, great, we'll do it. So I kind of like lied a little bit to make that happen because there was no guarantee that the museum was going to accept it. But I had to say that in order to interview Hannah. Sorry, mm-hmm. Hannah, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> it's <a> great interview. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And also, I had been to the museum since this whole process had started. So I actually got a chance to see, like, the exhibits and see what the museum actually is, like, about and what they're looking for. And I knew that at the time, they were leaning very heavily into Black Panther because Black Panther came out in 2018, I believe. And so they were leaning very heavily into that, like, in the gift shop. It was, like, all Black Panther stuff and everything. And I'm like, oh, great. I have one of the people who worked on the movie and I asked the curator, like, can we slide this interview in? And I was like, We're, I'm going to have it in a few days. I can send you the raw audio file in the same format as the other ones. And she was like, yeah, sure. We'll just issue a new deed of gift. I'm like, great. So sent that in. They issued a new one. So it was initially going to be 10 episodes. It ended up being 11. And then I also double checked with them to make sure that we could actually announce that this was the first podcast to be admitted into the Smithsonian. Like, I really wanted that I really wanted to make sure that distinction was correct because I knew that the Smithsonian had audio files, like audio recordings from the past and things like that. But I don't, I don't know if they actually had a podcast and also because the Smithsonian is not just one museum. It's like all the museums collectively make up the Smithsonian, but this was particularly attributed to the national museum of African-American history and culture. So once we checked with their internal affairs and they said, yes, that's true. It's the first podcast that's being uh, admitted into the Smithsonian. I'm like, yes, send the press release. And (laughs) and it went out. uh, It was uh, July of 2019 that it went out and the the news kind of hit that, you know, revision path is now in the Smithsonian. I have goosebumps. That's that's such an exciting story. (laughs) 
And I, I love how you worked all the angles. Like you, you are very resourceful in the same way that you sort of slid your name into that, um, those interview books in college. You, <laughs> you just had, well, you had your eye on all the moving parts and pieces and all the stakeholders. And when something aligned or when you could make it align, you did. And it worked out really nicely. And you're the first podcast that's been admitted into the Smithsonian. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> And it, it's interesting because that happened. And I think maybe it's something I'm still, I, I, I told this to people maybe like months or so after that happened, I was like, I don't really feel the weight or the gravity of it yet. Because when that happened also at the same time at the, the company I was working for, like they were doing this restructuring of management. And then I was like in this weird place at my job for a while. And it happened the very next day after that assignment. And so it felt like this was happening because of that. And so I was like in this weird limbo period at work for about, I don't know, maybe like a month or two. And it was coming up on the next installment of this, the same conference, this black and design conference I was telling you about. And so I was Mm -hmm. just telling myself, okay, you know what? I'll go to the conference and that'll be my victory lap. Don't try to stress now about whether or not you're getting your roses for this thing that just happened go to the conference. That'll be where this happens. And sure enough, it was like, I went to the conference. The curator was there. People knew about it. People were taking pictures. And I'll never forget this one girl actually came up to me and was like physically crying. Like (laughs) I listened to your podcast when I was studying at Micah and it just helped me get through it. Like, just thank you so much. And like, it's so weird because podcasting for me has kind of always largely been this solitary thing. I do all my interviews remote. And I really kind of don't hear much feedback unless I do a survey or someone says something on social media or I get a review on Apple Podcasts. So I kind of just keep things going. Often I'm also recording like a month or so in advance. So I'm Mm -hmm. always ahead of whatever is out right now. Like Mm -hmm. people are listening to this interview coming up and I'm like, oh yeah, we did that like a month ago. Like I've already moved past it to to something else. Like wait till you hear what's coming up next, you know? (laughs) It wasn't until I got to that conference and then really like felt it. Like that's where it's sort of like the weight of it kind of hit me. Like this is a big deal. And, you know, I went back to work and things were, were fine, you know, after, after I was able to kind of, I guess, feel that recognition, but certainly for a while afterwards, I didn't feel, I wouldn't say I didn't feel good, but I just didn't feel anything about the announcement. Like it happened. I'm like, yeah, it took four years to happen. I'm like, great. Now what? But I think you've you've done something really important here, and it may not all be felt in a single moment. I think it's the kind of thing where it's a legacy building activity that will be felt by many people that it'll ripple out and you won't necessarily even know how many lives you're affecting with this. But hopefully, you know, you'll be able to look back after it's been in the Smithsonian for years and you're on episode 600 or 750 <laughs> and feel like the architect of, of a really powerful and important archive. I think I'm starting to, to feel that now I'd say particularly this year, I started to feel it because 2020 has already just been such an interesting year in general because of the pandemic and the lockdowns. But prior to all of that, I was set to do, well, we did a live show out in Los Angeles in February 
And that was the first time we had done a live show, maybe in about two years. I think we did one back in 2017 in Atlanta. That was, we did it with Facebook. It was a, a good event, but it could have been better, I think. But this mm-hmm. was the first time doing one that was like a hundred percent from me, from revision path. And like had a great turnout, saw a lot of people that I haven't seen in a long time. Like there were friends from college that I hadn't seen who showed up that I was not expecting. They're like, yeah, we heard about it on TV. I'm like, on TV? Who said something about this on TV? I just put it out <laughs> on the web that I was doing a live show, you know? I started off the year like, yeah, we're going to do this kind of like Ersatz tour of of sorts where I had been talking to AIGA people in different cities about bringing the show there. And so we were going to do Seattle and Kansas City and Houston and Chicago and DC and New York. And, you know, then pandemic happens and it's like, eh, no travel. <laughs> and then I have been like pushing things so hard doing stuff at work. And then right up to the time I got laid off, you know, it was the time when as the layoff happened. And then the week after that was really when I think I was able to really start like processing what was going to happen next. And so I just, as I said before, kind of before we started recording, I just let life kind of wash over me Mm -hmm. for several weeks while I tried to figure out what the next step was going to be. Are you still figuring it out? I'm still figuring it out. I'm not great at the job search thing. I can build an idea from scratch and build it up. But like the thing that has been difficult for me and took me a while, even, you know, at this stage in my career is like, how do I take all the stuff that I've done and like condense it into this resume slash portfolio format that may get screened out by some algorithm I, can, I feel like I can always describe my work in context better than someone just seeing it on their own, particularly if it's in a portfolio. I know that I bring all this stuff to the table. I bring all these skills and experiences, et cetera. And then I try to get it down into a resume that I think might be good. And then you submit it to a job that you think you'd be perfect for. And they're like, nope. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's try another one. <laughs> you do teach, right? You're an educator as well. Yeah. In the past I've taught, I haven't taught probably courses in probably a good four or five years, but I taught uh, web design courses at DeVry University. I also did some teaching for a small, tiny bit. that was like a crossover course with Savannah College of Art and Design. I taught courses with Media Bistro. So I was teaching like other professionals in the media industry about like podcasting and digital marketing and stuff like that. Okay, well, I just want to put this out there into your marinade to think about as you're figuring out what your next step is, is that all of this really diverse life experience and all of this really scrappy, resourceful building of platforms from scratch is really, really useful for other people to learn from in an educational environment. I think you would be an exceptional college professor this kind of diverse experience that maybe doesn't work well with algorithms Mm -hmm. (laughs) really plays very well in the academic sphere where they're looking for people who have done a bunch of different things and can apply that to the educational environment. Not only that, but you're a natural mentor. I know I don't know you, but I feel like that might be true. Wow. (laughs) Well, thank you for, for saying that. It's interesting because in the past I have been, I think it's sort of been tossed around It's and it's only been here in Atlanta, which 
I have a whole rant sitting on my spirit about the Atlanta design community, but I won't go there. But I certainly have had invitations to teach like at some Atlanta design schools. And then that opportunity kind of just fizzles out when they're like, oh, but you don't, you don't have a degree in education. No, but I've got all this lived experience. They're like, yeah, Yeah. that's not going to count. Like, oh, well. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> and I'm not. I'm not saying that to discount what you said. I, I thank you. Thank you for saying that. But I've heard that in the past about like, yeah, you should come teach. You should do a lecture at, at this school or at that school. And then it always like comes down to the fact that I don't have the whatever the pedigree or the certain degree is that is needed to, I guess, signal to someone that I would be okay to do this thing. Is a weird feeling, and so. Part of why I think I've built a lot of platforms and things on my own is because I know I can do it. I don't mm-hmm. need to have whatever that pedigree or that degree is that says, oh, you can only do this if you've done a four-year course of study and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, no, I can do it. I've got the skills to do it. So I'm just going to do it. I'll admit that my my feeling is more of a gut feeling. And I I can't speak to how you may present in terms of academia trying to you know hire for positions. In your soul searching, keep that in mind, because I feel like there is so much information that you've learned and taught yourself. And there's a very, very important equation here is that you learned how to teach yourself. You had your first really positive experience was with those kids in the Legos in California. And I think there's something to that. From your lips to a hiring manager's ears, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, I certainly have had, you know, and there's been other times throughout my career. I mean, I did a lot of volunteer work with Hands on Atlanta, which is a, it's a local nonprofit that helps out other nonprofits, but they do it through education. So I've done a lot of speaking through there. I think it's possible. I'm not ruling mm-hmm. it out. Certainly. Okay. The thing that's always been a a struggle for me, like when it comes down to like looking for work is like, how do I take all this experience and put it in a way that someone will say, yes, you got the job or yes, you got the the opportunity. Cause oftentimes that, that doesn't happen. I mean, I've went in and talked with like recruiters or I've talked to people at like design staffing firms or something and they'll have my resume and they'll look at say my nine years of I'll work with my studio and just like put a big X over it. Like, okay, so let's talk about this work you did at AT&T in 2008. I'm like, oh, I don't even remember anyone who worked there back then. Like, why are <laughs> we counting out all this other stuff? Or they'll look at the things that I've done. And I don't know if this is a particularly unique Atlanta thing where the work that I've done that has not been for an established company has always been looked at as a hobby. Like I've had people say, oh, podcast. Oh, you have a podcast. That's a nice hobby, but not actual experience because it's not for a company or something. You know what I mean? It's a really weird, stupid feeling. Yeah, I hate that weird, stupid feeling. My life before podcasting was in TV and I did a lot of home improvement and makeover television shows. And what I really took from that is I learned how to tell stories and I love storytelling and particularly where it intersects with design. But when people look at that experience, I've always felt like, well, what does this qualify me for? It's not going to get me a job with a design firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, so how is it useful? But I learned so much in that chapter of my life in terms of 
just being able to be really agile, really scrappy, really creative, um, really fast thinking solutions on the fly, shoved into many different situations and adapted to them, you know, that kind of thing. And that's all really valuable life experience. But yeah, how do you tell somebody that? I feel your concern there, but I just want to put my vote out there for you being an educator. And um, and then I'll leave it at that because I... <laughs> I'm here for it. In the times in the past where I've taught, like I've loved it. Like it's been great. So I'm not against it at all. So I have an important question to ask before, you know, I let you go. I've taken a lot of your time. You know, you've made the last chapter of your life. The central theme of it has been about asking important questions of others in your interviews, but also questioning things around you and society and culture. And I wonder, what would you like to be asked about you? Now that you're on the other side of the interview equation. I mean, I guess the the big question mark for me has always been, how do I take all of these skills and things that I can do and just find a way to make a living? (laughs) I don't feel like I want to be pigeonholed into doing just one particular Mm -hmm. type of thing. The work that I did at Glitch, for example, was really great because I got to do a little bit of everything I did audio and video and marketing and design and business development. And just, I got to really spread my wings and do a lot of stuff. I really thrive in positions like that where I'm able to do a lot of different kinds of things, but it's still all in service of like a central goal. The last title I had was senior creative strategist, but I know just right now, you know, in this particular time that I happen to be looking for work, it's like, I'll look for a creative strategist positions or, you know, things that are similar. And they're like, oh, well, you need to have had agency experience. Have you worked for an agency? You haven't worked for an agency? Then why would we talk to you? That kind of thing. I don't even know what the right word for it is. It's like, I know that I have the experience, but then when it actually goes out to me trying to find work with a company, it's there's always a barrier there. And the barrier is because I didn't go this particular route or I didn't take this particular path to get a degree in this subject or something. So there's a lot of talk about the pipeline Mm -hmm. about like, Oh, the pipeline is broken or how do we change the pipeline? And I know that there's a lot of work that is done with that towards like new graduates. Like how do we get kids and new graduates into the industry? But like, there's a lot of like mid career folks like me that are scratching their heads too. Like what the fuck, you know, I've seen how this industry has changed in the past 20 years. I mean, the positions I had back in my 20s don't even exist anymore because the industry has just changed that much. And granted, I've kept up with it as much as I can just in terms of education and and trying new things. But like, and I'm not saying this is some sort of weird ageism thing, but it's just been very difficult for me to figure out how do I take all this stuff that I have to offer and really make a living with it? Because that's always been the thing. Like all my projects and things that I've done have like not gotten a lot of support. When I did the Black Weblog Awards from 2005 to 2011, I mean, I sold it because it was costing me thousands of dollars to do every year. And we were getting like jack shit in terms of support. I think we got at the most $100 in donations throughout the like five years that I did it. And I ended up selling it because I was like, I'm turning 30 and I don't want this anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. this is my burden that I'm going to cast off. And even with Provision Path, I've been fortunate to get sponsors to do this kind of work. But even that varies from year to year. Like, it's, I know that the work is important, but then having the the foundation in place to continue to sustain it has been difficult. 
Maybe maybe it's time to bring your studio back, but more of a being coming more of a consultant at this point. If folks would pay for it, I think that would be good. That's that's okay. also been. I don't know if that's another thing that's been weird in terms of like questions that I would want to ask me. Well, I guess that might be one thing. I I know that my work has value. I know that like intrinsically, but the work doesn't seem to have value when it's time for me to actually get paid, which I think might just be the general creative struggle, but I certainly feel it pretty hard. Like when people say, Oh, we love what you're doing. We love you to do this, blah, blah, blah. Can you come speak for X, Y, Z? And they don't pay or, Oh, we'd love to just, you know, take some time to pick your brain and they don't want to pay for consulting. They just think I'm going to just help them out for free. I get so many, so many requests that are like, Oh, could you just like throw this around to your network? Can you just check your network and see if your network might be interested? And I'm like, my network is working. I could do it as an ad on the podcast because then I could certainly get it out that way. And then the offer usually just kind of dies out after that. Yeah, I feel you. I mean, that is an ongoing struggle. Yeah, it's just it's frustrating because I know that that my work has value. I know that what I've done over the years has value. And I know that they know that it has value because they wouldn't come to Mm -hmm. me and ask me. But yet when it comes down to getting paid or when it comes down to something where I can sustain this and keep doing it, it dies off. I do want to mention to our listeners that there is a job board on Revision Path. And so it's a great place to look for talent, but also to place your listing if you're hiring. And that's one way, that's one stream of revenue that's coming in for you, correct? Yeah. So people can place listings, uh, $99 for 30 days. We mention it on the at the top of every podcast. We'll mention your listing. And it's a way that it's getting out, you know, to thousands and thousands of folks that are listening. What aspect of yourself do you wish that the world would acknowledge? I want to just say like the general brilliance of the work that I've done. And I don't mean to sound egotistical when I say that, but like even doing the black weblog awards back then in 2005 and keeping it going through 2011. I mean, NPR even picked it up at one point. They, they had a show called news and notes and they had this thing called the Bloggers Roundtable that I know one of their producers got from the Black Weblog Awards. Because <laughs> the only people that they featured were Black Weblog Award winners. They even would mention on the show, like, oh, you just won a Black Weblog Award. Congratulations. Like, clearly it's got the value. Like, I want to get my flowers while I'm here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but you're ahead of your time, which is, I mean, it sucks for you. But that's, you're a visionary and an innovator and an inventor. The very nature of that is that you build things and people take time to recognize their value, even though you see it, that's why you built it. And so it's hard. It's hard to be first. It's hard to be ahead of your time. I I guess I just want people to see and recognize that or, or know that that's a talent, I guess that I have. I don't know if, I don't know if you can put that on a resume and it not sound cheesy. Like, well, I don't know if you can either, but that's why I <laughs> want to put it here in this podcast because it's true. And I, that's one of the things I think you could bring to academia and also to consulting is you have a, a very astute sense of what's coming down the pipeline and what needs to be built, yeah. what platforms need to be built in order to sort of bridge those gaps and get there. And that's a systems thinker. That's a strategy mind. And then, you know, your design thinker. And I think all of that skill set. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't line item into resume 
things very well, but it's a kind of thinking that a lot of companies could really benefit from. And students, it's hard to be brilliant, man. And everybody's going, oh, Maurice will be fine. <laughs> yeah, you. That's that's yeah, that's so funny because people people have like contacted me separately, like, oh yeah, like you've got a great network, you'll be fine, you'll you'll find something. I'm like, okay, these bills will have to be paid, but I'll take your word for it, I guess. Because I, I mean, I'm not like sitting on my laurels, not like not doing anything, you know. I'm still nobody's, getting the show out every nobody's week. Nobody's thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I, I hope no one's thinking that. Um, actually, some people might be thinking that. To be honest, some people I think are thinking like, "Oh, this is this just happened because you know you're a black guy in podcasting, so that's why you got this thing." I've certainly heard that, but whatever. I know that's not the case. I know what I've had to work on and work hard at to get to where I'm at. There's no accounting for what other people think sometimes. No, I know that's that's its whole. that's its old drama well okay so let's just remove all of the pandemic your current sort of evaluating of what you want out of life in the short term okay and zoom out and look at the big big picture what do you want your life to be like 30 years from now 30 years from now i've definitely thought this out so there are people whom i would love to work with to build mm-hmm. things, you know, before I did, you know, and I just sort of been alluded to earlier in the interview is like, before I did all this design and podcasting stuff, like I was a writer and a musician. Like I right. did that well before I started learning computers and teaching myself code and all that sort of stuff. I would like to get back to that in some sort of way. I have a, a big fantasy of having my own uh, <laughs> of having my own Afro-Cuban big band, like Bobby Sanabria, like something along those lines. Oh my um, God, I love this so bad. <laughs> I, I, because I, I, so I played in a jazz band in high school. It was actually for, for, the, for the community college and like that opened up my mind to like the great American jazz classics and stuff. But we also did like a lot of classic rock, like a lot of like Chicago and Blood, Sweat and Tears and stuff like that. And I just love that whole sound. Like I'll listen to songs and think of like, oh, this would be better if it were this. I'll give you an example. The other day I was saying something about the theme to Punch Out, which is a a video game on Nintendo. I was like, the theme for that would be so great if it was like this like dueling guitar Spanish style, like a guitar and a mandolin just like strumming it out. That would be so dope. Um, so I would love to get back to music in some kind of way in 30 years, whether it's that band or something. I would like to get a MacArthur Genius Grant. I don't know how yes. that would happen, but I that is Let's on my bucket list. Universe. Yes. <laughs> my bucket list is definitely to to get a MacArthur Genius Grant. I would really love to work with Lynn Manuel Miranda. I'm like one degree of separation from him. I don't know how that would happen. Like we're right around the same age too. I would and I just watched the Freestyle Love Supreme documentary last night too. Like, I would love to find a way to work with him in any capacity. I don't know what that would look like. I'm putting that out in the universe for sure. I would love to work with him. I know I have a a series of graphic novels inside me. Ooh, it's it's been a number of ideas that I've been like germinating for decades at this point. And in 30 years, I would love for that to be out in the world in some way. Whether that's graphic novels, whether that's a, 
web series or, you know, whatever the media ends up being in 30 years. But I would love for that to get out in some kind of way. Like, I still feel like some of my best work has not been done yet, but it's not necessarily in design. Like, it's in music and it's in writing. So I feel like those opportunities are things I would like to do in the next 30 years. I mean, the thing that, you know, I sort of had to come to terms with, with the podcast being in the Smithsonian is like, that's a, that's a huge honor and it's always going to be there. As long as the Smithsonian exists, the podcast will be there. So in that respect, I feel like my place in history is set as it relates to that. I'm not saying that's where I just say, okay, that's it. Good job, everybody. And just like walk away from it. But I feel like the fact that it's in such an institution and it's preserved in that way, that it makes mm-hmm. me feel like it won't be something that vanishes with time. I mean, I've been around on the web since the late nineties. You try finding something from the web from back then. Right. Maybe it's in the internet archive. It most likely is not. There has been so much content that has just been lost completely to the annals of time as technology has progressed. And I don't want what revision path is to get lost in that. But then I, because I feel like it's now part of the Smithsonian that it, it will be preserved in that fashion. So like, now for the next 30 years, I know that there's there's music in me. Like I said, there's graphic novels and books in me. I just need the or want to have the time and the space to do that and to make that happen. So I feel like that's what my magnum opus stuff will be later on yeah. in life. Yeah, well, you're a multifaceted creative and you don't want to get pigeonholed. So I think that uh, Genius Grant is a nice way to sort of put some financial fuel into all those fires. Yeah, that's, I forget how much money it is, but that would be great. Not that I'm doing it just for the money, but I do know that they do provide you the sort of sustainable kind of framework for you to do a, a creative work for an extended period of time. And mm-hmm. I would love that. That would be great. I would love that for you. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending this time with me, for sharing all those great stories from your life and for sharing your whole life story with me <laughs> and our listeners. Well, thank you. I mean, it's not something that I think about all the time. Cause uh, again, I'm always kind of thinking ahead, months ahead, years ahead, et cetera. So I never really do a lot of taking stock in that way. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, even when I think back on like the past experiences that I've had, I can laugh at it now. So I don't want people that are listening to think that I'm being flippant or, or dismissive of things that have happened in the past, which honestly, you know, has contributed trauma. I'm not going to lie. I have been to therapy, things of that nature. So I'm not saying that like it happened and I just got over it. But I'm at a point now in my life where I realize, you know, these things have all happened for one reason or another. I've lived through it all. And that makes me a much stronger person than I could have ever thought I would be. So let's just kind of keep it going and see what happens. Yeah, let's do it. Hey, thanks for listening. To see images of Maurice's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app, or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you would, please do us a favor and rate and review. It really does help a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and you can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. 
Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.